My name is Mark Duncan. I'm the pastor of Students and Outreach, and we're so glad that you are worshiping with us together today at Salem Chapel, whether that's here in person or online. Uh, We are glad to have this time with you today. If it's your first time being with us in the last few weeks, uh, we've actually started a new series in the book of Judges. It's entitled Broken People faithful God. And the last two Sundays we have looked at uh, the introduction to the book, which has really given us an overview of honestly what is the whole narrative of the Bible. It's a history of a faithful God who initiated a relationship with people, his people that he made in his image, and then those people then turned their back on him, but he relentlessly pursued them to draw them to himself. And so uh, he provided in this book a picture at a time in Israel's history where God raised up what were known as judges uh, to come as his deliverers and rescue the people during those times where their sin has led them into captivity to prove himself to be faithful. And so if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to actually take a look at the first judge mentioned in the book today, the judge Othniel. And so we'll be looking in chapter number three. And so you can go ahead and turn to chapter number three. Uh, while you're doing that, I want to remind you, uh, if you didn't already know, during this fall that we're going through the book of Judges, we also have a church-wide Bible reading plan that is available for you. It's on our website. You can go to salemchapel.org judges and, and download a copy of that. There's a weekly reading assignment. If you're in that plan, uh, you'll actually be reading ahead uh, if you follow the plan, you'll be ahead of the sermon from the following Sunday. And so many of you maybe have already put in the time uh, in this passage as well, like I have, uh, and you're ready to go. But if not, it's not too late to jump on board with that. So give that a look. There's also a Bible reading tool on that website that will teach you how to apply what God is showing you in his word. So I want to encourage you to check that out. I also want to remind us before we jump into the passage of the cycle that we're going to see throughout the book of Judges. We have a graphic that sort of illustrates this. It's a cycle of sin, people giving in to sin, following sin where it leads them, and then when that sin inevitably leads to destruction or to captivity or some form of pain and brokenness, in that moment they cry out to God, they turn away from their sin, cry out to God, and then God sends a deliverer and then have a short period of rest and then it's rinse and repeat. Right? And this happens over and over and over again. And I think the temptation for us as we get into this passage is Israel is so dumb. Okay? Can, it, can they not get the point of what's going on? We need to recognize today in our own hearts that these are the exact same tendencies and struggles uh, that we come to when it comes to taking God at his word and obeying him. This morning. And so I want to read the first few verses of chapter 3 first to give us some background information on where the people of God are now. All right, they've, they've, God has told them you had the land of Canaan. They've gone into the land of Canaan. They fought a few battles. But they did not follow the command that God gave them, which was to put all of the people out of the land, to take the land for their own inheritance, all right, to get them, drive them out of the land. That's what God called them to do. And they did a little bit of fighting. And then they stopped. And so we've got the land still partially occupied by the enemies of Israel. And the Israelites have come to accept that reality. And that's where we pick up with things today. All right, so verse number one of chapter three. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. 
to teach war to those who had not known it before. And these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. And they were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. All right, so what do you have going on here? God has left all right, the work that was undone by the people of Israel, the work that he called them to do, which was to go in and drive out the inhabitants of the land and to take it, God has allowed them to remain in that place. All right, was God powerful enough on his own to have driven them out? Most certainly, all right? God spoke the world, the universe, everything to existence with his mouth. He could have just been like, be gone, and that problem would have been solved, but he left them there on purpose. Why? Why does it say there in the passage to test Israel by them. It's a means of testing to see how Israel, God's covenant people, would respond to this work being left undone in their midst. Would they choose to obey God and follow through with, their, with what they have committed to do, or will they refuse? And that's where they've left them at. So these, these five nations are there among them, and they are right, they're living right in the middle of it, right? They have set up camp among them. It was at the beginning, maybe, just like we're living in the same region, okay? But as time goes on, maybe now they're starting to live next door, you know, to one of the folks that were there before. And then, you know, before you know it, that someone needs to borrow a cup of sugar, you know? So someone goes next door and they, they, they meet each other and a relationship starts to form. And then before you know it, they're watching Monday Night Football together, right? And they're having a great old time. Like it's never started. What we're gonna see here, this progression never started with the intention at the beginning, in Israel's heart that they want to walk away from God. It didn't start there. It started with small compromises along the way. And that first compromise was not obeying God to the letter of what he called them to do. See, what Israel didn't see, what they had become desensitized to, notice that it says in verse two, God left them in there so that they would what? Know war, to teach the people war that had not known it before. See, not only was there a generation now that did not know the Lord, the generation that came after Joshua and came after Caleb and came after a lot of the, the big shots and the elders of the people that had lived and, and experienced God's provision in saving them and giving them the land. Those folks had died. This is a new generation. They don't know God like that and they never had to fight because they came into the land and they just accepted the reality for what it was. They never bothered to pick up a sword. They never bothered to, to get in shape and to learn the art of war. They just assumed everything is okay. And what's the problem with that? God's like, they need to know that the work is not finished. And if they're going to obey me to what I've called them to do, they've got to be ready to fight. They've got to be ready to fight. See, they didn't recognize they were on a battlefield. They didn't sense that there was danger in any way in the way that they were living and where they were. And since they didn't think they needed to fight, they never learned how. And friends, that's the place that we find each of ourselves in that place of getting complacent, getting comfortable with only halfway doing what God has called me to do. We never start out with the intention of walking completely away from a faithful God. No one does. They start with little compromises along the way. And before we know it, we don't even know how to fight the fight anymore that God has called us to do. This is the reality. When I obey God, and this is what I want you to remember today, when God calls me to obey him, 
He's calling me to fight. He's calling me to fight. What am I fighting against? All right, there's a threefold front that I'm being attacked on each and every day that wants me to disregard what God has said to be true and to give in to what I think is true, right? There's a threefold attack. Scripture says I'm already at war with three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All right, what do we mean by that? Let's define that a little bit. We talk about the world. This is the world system that we live in. This is a system that does not bow the knee to what God wants, but bows the knee to passions. It's about making my life comfortable, about making my life successful at all costs, even the, the best well-meaning of us, the things we put into play are corrupted by sin. It's, it's, it's the effect of a sinful person, sinful people in a system, right? It breaks down, right? So the world itself, our culture itself is constantly telling us that we don't need to obey what God has said and gives a lot of compelling reasons in our mind for why that is, right? But also the flesh. What do I mean by the flesh, it's my own personalized sinful contribution, right, to that world system, right? The Bible calls me, calls that person the old man before Jesus Christ, the old me that wants to give in to the passions that I feel, right? a lust for power, a lust for sex, a lust, a lust for greed, whatever I can get my hands on. If it feels good, it must be good, it must be right for me. And even in Christ, that shadow of my former self is waiting there in the background, poking and prodding me in very specific ways that are unique to me, attacking me all day long. All right, so I've got the world system. The culture is, is, is opposed to obeying God. I've even got my own version of that, my, my flesh that's opposed to obeying God and wants to serve myself. But then what's that third enemy? The devil, the devil, the sworn enemy of God, sworn to destroy everything that he created. And you know what? I think that's the one of the three that we have the hardest time believing is an actual threat. You know, somewhere in our minds, the fact that we can serve a supernatural God and that he can do a supernatural work of regenerating people spiritually and bringing them to life in Christ, we can accept all of that happens supernaturally. Right? It's not something that I do, it's something he does. But for whatever reason, in our modern culture, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we such an intellectual culture. The idea of a devil or Satan is just not palatable to us. Right? And here's the deal. That's exactly his strategy in our culture. You know, get, a, get some friends that live in different parts of the world that follow Jesus. Ask them about experiences they have in the way that Satan manifests himself in the culture there. He works differently in different places. Are there other cultures that are more mystical type of cultures? And you see things that are crazy things, people possess and doing amazing, terrible things. And you're like, wow, that's crazy. I've never seen that here. It's because that's not how he works here. He's not a dumb uh, general of, of the army here. He's a, he's a strategist. He's been watching people a long time. And he knows in a culture like ours that is information driven, culture that values more knowledge, that the best place for him to be as an adversary is quiet. If you're not talking about him, he may as well not ex exist. And what does that allow him to do? What does the Bible call him? It calls him a liar. He's a deceiver. All he does is accuse. All he does is go behind and go in your ear and tell you lies about yourself and lies about God. He attacks with distraction. He 
puts, makes something look pretty over here and tells you that you really deserve this. You know, you really do. And that flesh in you is like, yeah, you really do. And you're like, I kind of think I do. He, he lies with distortion. He takes what God has said and he changes it around. He did this with Eve, remember, when he was like, did God really say you shouldn't eat of this? Did he say that you, did you really say you were gonna die? Is that really what he said? Distorts the truth. He causes division. Man, can we say that we see that full on display right now? Just imagine, like, little whispers in the ear. Man, how dare that person talk to you that way? Don't they know what you've done? Don't they know who you are? I can't believe that she said that, can you? I can't believe they posted that on Facebook. That's the enemy. He's a liar. He would love nothing more than for the people of God to go in different directions and to scatter. That's what he does. He also attacks through discouragement. He wants you to make you feel like you're a failure. That's gonna be your temptation even today. I just wanna be honest with you, preview. You're gonna feel like, you'll be tempted to feel like a failure when you come face to face with the reality of what your sin has wrought and what it draws. Satan is lying to you. He's lying to you in that moment. That's how he operates. Do you see this? Do you recognize that every morning that we wake up, we walk into a battle zone? People of Israel didn't see that. This is why it's hard to obey God. This is why you and I have to fight for every inch. Every day is a fight. We got three enemies going at us all day long, every day. The question is, are you gonna pick up the sword and fight? Right, this just might be the fight of your life. All right, so what are the assurances today? Let me give you four assurances. What are the assurances do I have today that I can win this fight? What are the assurances I have that I can win this fight? So let's go back to Judges. Let's go to verse five. Let's see the progression of what's happening here in the lives of the people of Israel. All right, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All right, see, they're having Monday night football together. And their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they what? And they served their gods. I mean, it happened as simple as this. Two guys are hanging out. I'm being facetious with the football analogy, but like they're hanging out. You're really not that bad. I kind of like you. You know, our kids should hang out together. So the kids hang out, and a few years down the road, they're like, man, they sure make a cute couple, don't they? Yes, they do. Let's plan a wedding. Right? You're planning the wedding, and they're like, ooh. So you want to include that part with like your false gods in the ceremony? Well, I mean, I guess it's okay. After all, two families are coming together. I see a little compromise right there, and before you know it, son and daughter are married, now they have kids. What God had called them to do at the beginning, to drive out the people of the land, just got incredibly complicated because now they're making covenants with the people of the land. Think about how awkward that is. To know what God has called me to do, and now because of my choices, I've bound myself to this nation in the covenant of marriage. Now there are children that are a byproduct of that as well. Wow, right? Kind of gone downhill, but it continues. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Look how how they described doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot God, and they served false gods, right? 
That's evil in the sight of God. So only right response from a loving, just God, verse eight. Therefore, the anger of the Lord, that righteous anger was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan rishathaim eight years. Fun, uh, uh, fun challenge to say that name three times fast, okay? So Cushan rishathaim the people of Israel have gone from just hanging out to now marrying, now to the point that this guy, this Kushan guy, uh, which by the way, his name when translated means Kushan the doubly evil, which is an amazing name, all right? He's a crazy guy. I kind of envision like a apocalyptic like biker gang. I don't know that he kind of fits that name. Or this guy sees an opportunity. He's like, look at them. They're weak. Look how weak they are, all right? They're, they've basically taken us in with open arms. The time is ripe. And if you notice in verse eight, who was it that sold them into his hand? It was God. God sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim. Wow, wait a second. I thought God was a loving God. He is loving. That's why he left the nations there to test them. What was his desire in that? That when the people would realize the full consequence of what they had done and the weight of what their sin was doing, they would turn to him, right? This is the first assurance that I have that I can win the fight. That God will use my brokenness to show me the battlefield. God will use my brokenness to show me the battlefield. A personal example of this, when I was in college, a friend of mine told me that a couple of uh, Marines and a couple of guys in training for the military were putting together a martial arts group at Miller Park doing Kung Fu at five in the mornings, two days a week, and they invited me to participate, which is super funny because I have no military experience, uh, nor any experience in fighting at that point. All right, so like, hey, you want to be a part of it? And I was like, for sure I want to be a part of fight with a bunch of Marines, right? These guys put the martial in martial arts, right? So they invited me over there and we're training. And I think I'm like on week two of our training out there in, you know, in the dark at Miller Park on the concrete and they're teaching us to roll the right way. They're like, it won't hurt if you do it right. I mean, it sure hurt a whole lot before I got the right one, all right? Learning to fight, learning to hold my hands up and to, to protect my face, learning the different moves and the techniques, running so many drills and so much cardio, right? It was crazy. I think like, like two, three weeks in and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to fight, all right? Let's go. I know a couple things, all right? Who wants to fight me? I'm ready to put up a fight. And uh, my teacher kind of chuckled a little, a little bit, and he's like, um, no, you're not ready for that yet. <laughs> like, well, keep training, you know, keep training. And so kept training week after week after week, four months, five months, six months in. Finally, he comes to me, and he's like, all right, you are officially invited to fight night. And I was like, fight night? Yes, what is that? That sounds amazing. He's like, well, it's the time we get together. It's by invitation only with other schools and you can spar a little bit, all right? And you can learn, learn what it's like to use that in real life a little bit. And I was like, perfect, I'm pumped, I'm ready. I'm mopping the floor with anybody I get there. So we, we schedule fight night, we get there. It's like a former convenience store turned into a, a, a fighting arena, which was amazing, okay? And still had the gas pumps out front, uh, real classy. So we went inside, all the, all the other schools are there. It's my turn to fight. So I get in the ring, he's like, all right, it's gonna be a three minute fight. You know, of course he, he gave me the gloves and he got the headgear. And by the way, if you've ever fought in that, those don't really do a whole lot. 
uh, when it comes down to taking the edge off. It really does not, okay? But safety first. So we got the headgear on, the gloves. I get in the ring, and it's my turn, and the timer has started. And I'm like, okay, I'm sizing this guy up in that moment, and you're kind of like walking around like this, and I'm like, okay, he's probably a good, you know, 10, 15 years older than me. Like, for sure, I've got the advantage. You know, a guy right in college, if I got the energy, I could take him down. And so, you know what, I'm going to make the first move. And so on the very first punch, I jump in to punch him right there in the face. He blocks that punch out of the way, and the punch is over his hand, hits me square in the face, right here on the nose. And you ever, like, you've had that happen before? Maybe you've been punched in the face, but like, you ever saw stars, like, in that moment? Like, legitimately seeing stars. And then, shortly after that, is followed by my eyes filling up with water. Okay, it wasn't tears. All right, my eyes are watering. So I can't see anything. I'm kind of delirious to what's happening in that moment. Thankfully, he was kind and gave me a moment to gather myself. But after that, when I got hit in the face, all of those moves and all of that discipline and all of that confidence I had just went right out the window. And you know what it looks like after that? This is what my fighting looked like after that first hit. <laughs> you know, get back there. All of that stuff went out the window. Why I wasn't ready to fight. I thought I was ready to fight. But in that moment, until I felt the reality of the fight and what was at stake, by the way, I lost the fight in case you were wanting to know. When I felt the pain of it, I had a greater appreciation and a greater awareness of what I was there to do and what was at stake in that moment. And God, in his sovereignty and his love for us, does not mean that he can't take what my brokenness has brought to the table, what my sin has worked in my life and the pain that I feel. He is so powerful. He is so sovereign. He's so loving. He can work even through that to get my attention to where I am. He can give me a reality like, hey, this is not going to be easy to obey God. It is not going to be easy to, to obey me because there's forces on every side going after you. But sometimes the stubbornness in us, it takes God in his love to let us have a taste of what that's like before we recognize where we are. It gives us a view of the battlefield that we didn't have before. Notice when it says that God sold them into this hand, God only sold them into what they had already pledged to buy. The people had chose to let the other people live. The people of Israel chose to live among them and accept their culture as their own. The people had chosen to make covenants with them. They had chosen to serve their God. So it's really not that much of a step for them to now serve them because they're really already serving them ahead of God anyways. So God raised up a person to come in, a doubly evil guy, and he became their master. And it says he, they served them for eight years. But God can redeem everything for my good, everything the consequences of my choices. He can redeem those. Romans 8, 28, a verse we're all familiar with. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things is not just the good things. It's also the result of my sin. When I didn't fight when I was supposed to, when I compromised myself one piece at a time. Remember, Israel didn't see or recognize they were on a battlefield or sense the danger or see the need to fight until they felt the pain of their choices. Your brokenness, my brokenness, doesn't have to defeat me, but it gives me a bird's eye view 
of the battlefield of my life. It gives me a sense of urgency that I can't sit this fight out. I can't call an audible on my sin. It gives me a sense of danger. But God can redeem it. That's the first assurance I have. The second assurance is God will come to my rescue when I see him as my deliverer. When I see him as my deliverer. Look in back at chapter 3, verse number 9. Okay, so the people are serving eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. You may remember Caleb is one of Joshua's buddies uh, back in the day. And this, Othniel is his close relative. Uh, and so Othniel uh, had known battle. He had been in the fights back with Joshua and Caleb. So he was familiar with the art of war and God raised him up in that time in response to what? In response to the cries of the people. An illustration of this. What do you have to do to rescue someone? What do you have to do to rescue someone? Okay, so say I'm at the beach with the family and I look out in the waves, and I see someone struggling to make it in the waves. They're obviously drowning, right? What if I see them? There's a rope nearby, and so I chuck the rope out there to the drowning person. What has to happen before that person can be rescued? Three things. The first thing that has to happen is what? The person has to recognize they're drowning. They actually have to recognize, like, this is not a great situation to be in, right? I'm not going to make it anymore on my own. Doggy paddling isn't cutting it. Uh, the undertow is too strong, right? And many of us, we resist that notion for so long. We're willing just to try to fake it till you make it. If I just push a little harder, just try a little harder, I just get smart about it. I think I can work my way out of this problem. What are we doing? We're just sitting there struggling in the water, just sitting there drowning. What else has to happen to rescue someone well, first of all, if he looks at me and I've thrown him the rope, he has to believe that I and the rope have the power to do what? To rescue him. He's actually got to have confidence in the person who threw the rope. Like, that guy's not going to throw me a rope and be like, see ya. All right? He's going to have to have confidence in that split second to decide, this guy has my best interest at heart. He's going to rescue me. That's got to be a realization that they have. And that's another thing. A lot of times we can experience the pain of our sin and be wallowing in that and still not come to the resolution that God is the one that has the power to rescue me from it. And despite the fact that he has thrown a lifeline in Jesus Christ, we just look at it. We evaluate it. We interrogate God, so to speak, if he can be trusted. What's the third, way, third thing that has to happen to be rescued? I actually have to grab the rope, right? He's got to grab the rope. That is the belief that backs up the statement. That's why Romans says, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. It's two parts. It's not just enough to say, look, there's a rope. And look, it looks like it could save me. And you know what? I think that's an amazing rope. It's a beautiful rope. In fact, I would love to come one day a week and gather with other people and tell people how great that rope is. I might sing some cool songs about the rope. I might read the Bible that talks about this rope, but I'm not grabbing the rope. 
takes all three components, right, to be rescued. No different in this case right here. And when the people are crying out to God, that's not just a, ah, we're uncomfortable. That's a cry of repentance. That's a cry that admits in one breath, I was wrong. And everything that is happening to me now is a result of what I've done. I don't deserve your mercy, but I'm begging for it. I have nothing else. I'm grabbing onto the rope. It's not grabbing onto the rope with one hand and trying to swim with the other hand. It's all in. When I'm at that place where I see God as my deliverer, when I see him as my sole deliverer, he's ready to rescue. He's able to rescue. How do I see God as my deliverer? I accept the reality of my condition and how I got there. I agree that his words are true and his discipline is loving. And I believe that his power can save me and nothing else. And when I understand that in that moment, whether that is today or whether you have parts and, and milestones in your past and your walk with the Lord where you can recognize key moments where you turn from your sin and threw yourself at his mercy and grabbed him that rope. It's always the same reception. It's not God standing there ready to judge. How could you do this again? How many times do I have to pull you out of what you get yourself into? No. The same loving God that allowed me to feel a taste of what I sold myself into with my sin it's the same loving God that will pull me out of it as quickly as possible if I will just return to him. It's a beautiful verse in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, that I've always taken to heart when it comes to repenting. This is what it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. That's exactly the work that he will do. He's not afraid to use my brokenness to get my attention He's ready to rescue. But this is the third assurance today. God has equipped me with what I need to wage war. God has given me what I need to wage war. He's called me to fight. He's told me it's going to be a fight to obey me. You're going to have to wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But I've given you what you need to get the job done. Verse number 10 says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Kishan Rishathaim. Right? Othniel. Just a guy, right? This is a guy who was ready, and he was willing, and he was made able by God to do what God called him to do. He was ready. You know, this is a man of war. Like I said, he had fought in prior battles. He knew his way around a sword. He knew what warfare was going to look like. He had experienced, probably had scars on his body where he had gone into battle. He knew what it was going to be like. He had devoted himself to that art. He knew his weapons. Let me ask you this. Do you know your weapons? Do you understand the armory of God that he has given to you? Hold your place and judges. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read it real quick, real quick, briefly understand and make sure we understand what God has equipped us with. All right, chapter 6, verse number 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. See, this is a spiritual battle, so it's going to require spiritual armor, spiritual weapons. What are they? Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on first, what? The belt of truth, the belt of truth. I think we've got a graphic to illustrate this armor as well. The belt of truth is the word of God. At the core of my being, the belt's sort of an important piece of clothing in any general time, like keeps your pants up, right? But especially as you're wearing armor, things attach onto that. Uh, That's the core of like the the armor system. It's dependent upon what is girding it up. Now the word of God is the belt of truth. God's word is truth. That's the foundation of who I am. Nothing can can you know can make me knock me off what I'm doing whenever that's the truth of what it is. Nothing's going to disturb that. The lies of the enemy that tried to tell me lies are going to be obvious. Why? Because I've got God's word at the at the center of who I am. But then he continues on. He says, after you put on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Of course, a breastplate covers the vital areas here in the middle, the organs. And when we talk about righteousness, I know I can go into battle against the world, the flesh, and the attacks of the devil with confidence when they come to accuse me of failure and to accuse me of turning my back on God. I can say with all confidence, toe to toe with Satan, you can't get into this because that's not my righteousness on display. This is the righteousness afforded to me in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Satan wants to accuse you of being a failure, how could you call yourself a Christian and live this way? How could you have found yourself wrapped up in this? In confidence, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can look him in the eye. And you say, get away from me, Satan. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And that's what's guarding me here. That breastplate of righteousness. What else does he say you've got? Verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. My peace, the peace that I have is grounded in the gospel. Peace is a weird thing to think about when it comes to like being in a battle. Like when I was back in, in fight night, I was definitely not at peace when I was getting hit in the face, all right, flailing around. It's not a peaceful feeling. I, I can go to battle. What this is saying is I can go to battle every day. The enemies around me, whatever the circumstances are, and I can be at peace because I know that it's not up to me to win my battle, that the battle has already been won in Jesus Christ. He's already finished the work. He said it on the cross. It is finished. I'm at peace with God. That's the most important thing that I'm concerned about. And so whatever this day will hold, whatever temptations I have to face, I know I'm going to get through that because I'm at peace with God. But he continues and says, in all circumstances, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That's faith in the power and the promises of God for my protection. It's one of the reasons I recommend, if you don't already, is keeping a personal history of God's faithfulness to you in your life, whether that be in a journal, whether you put it like in a note you know, on, your, on your iPhone or wherever you've got that at. Because you know what that is? That's a shield of faith. You're wearing it on your back until I'm getting into battle. And when I'm tempted to be afraid of what's gonna happen next and, and how this is gonna work out, I pull that shield off that shield of God's faithfulness in my life, and I hold that in front of me with all confidence, and there's no way that the lies and the accusations of the enemy are gonna break that shield. No way. 
And then he finishes that, the armor, the defensive armor, with verse 17, the helmet of salvation. And my thoughts and my conclusions are shaped by my identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. You know where the enemy likes to get at the most? It's right in here. He gets at the place in the, the, the things, you, the rationales that you come up with, the reasoning that you come up with, the lies that you're tempted to believe. It's a head game. It's a head game. Thankfully, again, because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has afforded me, because I'm saved, I can choose to think differently. I can take every thought captive. I have wisdom as wisdom from God to know how to respond. I can identify truth from lying, call it out for what it is. And it's like a helmet that guards this thing and protects it. And then notice this, he finishes the armor with the only offensive weapon. Everything else at this point is defensive. One offensive weapon, what does he say? Verse 17, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And here we've come full circle. I'm grounded in the truth of God's word. And now the sword is is a weapon of offense that I have for me. And another really retro idea, um, but a good one. It's to not just read the word of God, but to actually memorize it. Do you know why that's more powerful than just having my iPhone on demand with the Bible app? See, with the iPhone on command, I can be like, give me a verse that talks about this. I can put my agenda on the word of God. Find a verse that matches up with the thing I want to say. Post that on my social media. You know, that'd be my thought for today. When I'm memorizing the word of God, I'm internalizing it in here. This is the twofold, both the benefit and the danger of that is that God's word is a sword, it's sharp. And more often than not, guess who's getting cut by it? Me. And you, if you're responding and listening to it. He's doing his work like a surgeon, not to harm, but to cut out any of the parts that don't need to be there, right? But it's also my offensive weapon. Satan cannot stand against the truth of God's word. He has to run. He has to run from it. And so when it's in here and I'm hearing his lies, I have ammunition to spit back in his face. Get behind me, Satan. This is what God's word says in this instance. When I'm putting it in there, it's available to me. Are you using the armor that God has given you? Are you familiar with the weapons? This is another plug for that reading plan, by the way. It's a good opportunity to get sharpening up that sword and get on there and and read it and apply that thing and put it in your head so that you're ready to fight. Going back to Judges. Othniel was ready. He was also willing. Notice no one else stood up to fight with him. Othniel's like, I'll go. Even if the whole world turns against me, I'm gonna obey God. And he did it. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to be the only one. I love Sundays because we come together and we can look around this room and we see, hey, I'm not the only one. That's super encouraging about gathering. I can see, hey, the church is out there. We're on mission. We're doing this together. So I'm ready on Monday morning where I go in and I'm the only one. Are you willing? Are you ready? Are you willing? But notice Othniel was made, he was made able. Look at the first part of verse 10 again. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. Let me tell you why this is significant. I'm envisioning like Othniel before this moment, capable fighter probably, okay? He's experienced. But in that moment, the spirit of God came upon him 
And he transformed into something much more powerful than he had been before. I don't know why I think about it this way. Some sort of like Israelite ninja back in the day, okay? It doesn't say anything that he like, through his great leadership skills, he went and commanded an army of the Israelites to go and attack and take it. No, it says he went out and did the job. So imagine like one guy versus like an army. And he's like, it's like an awesome like plot for an action movie, isn't it? It's like chopping, hacking this way and that. Why? Because the spirit of God was upon him. We may read over that really lightly, but you need to remember something. In the Old Testament, God's spirit was not always present upon his people. And David, the spirit rushed upon him. In fact, one of David's Psalms is, take not your Holy Spirit from me, David said. That, he knew that was a possibility. God's spirit wasn't always there. God put his spirit on Moses. Moses did powerful things. In this moment, God put his spirit upon Othniel. But what you and I forget, friends, is that when Jesus died on that cross and we put faith and trust in him, he said he was going to bring the comforter, God's presence, God's spirit that would be and indwell me and you in this day. He's the guarantee of the inheritance we have in Jesus, and he is the power of God through the gospel at work in me. And the same spirit that rushed upon Othniel is the same spirit that you have at work in you. So let me ask you, what are we doing with the power? Why do we think we can't stand up to the sin at work in our life? We have the Holy Spirit. One of the verses that gets taken out of context so much 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a lot of people think it says, God will not give you more than you can handle. That's baloney. Read Judges chapter 3. He obviously gave them more than they can handle, right, to get their attention. It doesn't say that. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We all feel the struggle. But with that temptation, God always makes a way of escape so that we can bear up under it. I can resist it. You know what that way is? It's the Holy Spirit at work in me. I can face temptation. I can see what seems like a really complicated situation I've made with my sin, and I can say, no, there is a way out of this. And it's going to be by bowing the knee to God and letting his spirit work in me. Made able. That's why I said made able. I think it was made able by the spirit at work, and we can do the same. We were not saved by the blood of Jesus to cower in the shadows of fear, but to walk in the confidence of the power of God at work in us. Are you ready to fight your flesh like your life depends on it? I'll leave you with this in closing. This is the last assurance. God will give lasting rest to the war-weary. Lasting rest to the war-weary. Verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Did God rescue them? Yes. Did God raise up a deliverer? Yes. And this is honestly one of the best judges in the book. As we'll go through the rest of the judges, you'll see that. This one was like, there's nothing bad said about him in the whole book. Can't say the same for some of the other guys. Best, the best one of the, of the lot, and that peace that came from his deliverance lasted 40 years. And then it was done promise that you and I have is that God raised up a better judge. His name was Jesus. And the assurance that I have is that every day as I'm fighting the flesh and fighting back the world and fighting against Satan, that someday when I stand before him, I'll stand before him complete and I can take that sword and I can drop it. And I don't have to return again because it's done. Friends, the temptation today 
to listen to the lies that have been in your ear under this teaching this morning by the enemy. Lies that say my little compromises aren't that significant. A lie that says my life, my career, my relationships are too valuable to waste on obeying God in areas that are controversial to the culture. A lie that says, just going through a rough patch. I'll make it out on the other side. Just gotta get my act together. It's time to fight. There's already a battle raging around you. This is a call to action. When God calls you to obey, he calls you to fight. I'll leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with that, it's a work of fiction. It's a great story. It's, it's basically letters and correspondence back and forth from a fictitious senior demon to his younger co- cohort that's raising up and learning how to get the job done, learning how to take Christians out of the fight. And he says this, He says, the more often that he, the Christian, feels without acting, the less he will be able to ever act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Resist the urge to hear the word of God spoken in this moment, to hear about his love for you, and to think that somehow this does not touch you in any personal way. Resist the temptation to think that your sin is not going to destroy you. Take the rope. Turn to God and let him be your deliverer this morning. It's time to fight. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the confidence that we have to do what you have called us to do because of Jesus. God, you have given us everything that we need in the gospel. It's not lacking in any way. God, what is often lacking, lacking is our desire to take up the fight. Gotta pray for anyone in this room this morning that is feeling the weight of their sin. God, not to let the enemy discourage them this moment to accuse them, but to be reminded like the people of Israel, this is an opportunity to see the battlefield. God, you've given me what I need. Help me to do that, to follow you and to fight. And God, we look forward to that day when we can stand before you complete and lay down our weapons because of what Jesus did for us. In his name we pray confidently this morning, amen.